Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word this evening. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, teaches us your word, and then brings it back to our memory for application. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we can be challenged by the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the second half of Genesis chapter 12, so go ahead and turn to that chapter, and we'll take a few moments to just review what is happening in chapter 12. Chapter begins with the reiteration of God's command to Abram to get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now, I think it's very important for us to pay attention to that phrase, that destination phrase. He is being sent to a particular land. That command does not change in this chapter. So, what we find in the second half of Genesis 12 is really a second test for Abraham's spiritual life and is related to the promise that's given in verse 7. See, verse 1, you might even circle or highlight the word land. The command is to get out of your country, lech lecha, and get to a land that I will show you. Then, in verse 7, God says to Abram, once he gets there, to your descendants I will give this land. And so... We see that this is foundational to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when I ended last week, I was drawing a comparison between the Abrahamic covenant uh, and, as it relates to Israel, and our positional truth in Christ. So we can put it up here uh, this way. With the Abrahamic covenant... The Jews are promised, are given an unconditional covenant that cannot be lost. No matter what they do, they can't lose their position in the covenant, I mean nationally. And remember the analogy here is that the nation Israel is often used in in Scripture as a type of the life of the individual believer. So what happens to the nation Israel corporately is, is analogous to what happens to us individually. So just as the Abrahamic covenant is given to the Jews and it's it's unconditional, when we are in Christ in terms of our position, 
That is unconditional. Salvation is not based on who we are or what we've done. It is a free gift of God. The Abrahamic covenant was a free gift to Abraham. It's called the, the treaty type that it was uh, analogous to in the ancient world was a, called a royal grant treaty. It was not based on anything that the individual had done. second element we see is not only is it unconditional, but they can't lose it. They can't lose their position. The Abrahamic covenant is, go- is, is for Israel for all time. In the same way, when we're in Christ, that can't be lost. We call that the doctrine of eternal security. We can't be removed from our position in Christ. The Abrahamic covenant becomes the basis for blessing. In the same way, because we're in Christ and we possess His righteousness, that is the basis for blessing in the believer's life. Now, the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament, let me put it over here, the Mosaic Covenant is equivalent to sanctification. See, for so long people tended to get the Mosaic Law misidentified. They thought it had something to do with salvation. But remember, God already adopts Israel as His firstborn prior to Exodus 20. So that the Mosaic Law is for the sanctification of the nation. It's not for their salvation. So the Mosaic Law is analogous to the believer's sanctification. It is conditional. And sanctification is conditional because it's dependent on our volition. We can't, under the Mosaic Covenant, they could lose in the sense that they could go outside the land. They could be removed from the land because of disobedience. In the same way, the believer can lose uh, their position, uh, their abiding in Christ, and their spiritual growth because of disobedience. And when you're obedient to the Mosaic Law, there was blessing. When there was disobedience, there was cursing or divine discipline. The same thing when we're obedient to the Lord and we're walking by means of the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and advancing the spiritual life, then we realize blessing. But when we are disobedient, then there is divine discipline. So that's an analogy that we can impose on the life of Abraham in terms of application, in terms of seeing how these things apply to us in our life today. The land in the Old Testament, the land is equivalent symbolically to the place of blessing. That's why in the Mosaic Law they're told that if you're disobedient and the fifth cycle of discipline means that you are removed from the land. Fourth cycle of discipline includes agricultural um, disaster and agricultural problems which produces economic problems. And agriculture is coming out of the land. So when they're disobedient, it affects the land. This is one of the most important principles to understand in the way God has structured reality. And I want you to think about this in, in this time of national crisis, national adversity. We're facing an election. 
I like what one person said uh, in an interview the other day. Somebody asked him, he said, well, what do you think we should do if uh, Senator Kerry gets elected? And he said, well, we'll jump off that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> what we have to uh, recognize is there may be some real adversity ahead for this nation if, uh, based on who gets elected and who doesn't get elected. There may be some, some tremendous consequences, but we have to remember that God controls history and that the issues involved in history are ultimately spiritual. The causes and effects are spiritual. They're not based on one-to-one physical issues. For example, you can't go out and fix the problems in this nation by passing certain laws or electing certain individuals. The spiritual, as as this nation has left its Judeo-Christian roots and drifted from uh, a position of absolutes and from a position of truth, what you then generate is a whole series of unintended consequences that you can't tie directly. When we do analysis on history, you can't say, well, we did this and this is the result. Now, you can do that on some things in a minor scale. But in a macro scale, you don't always see the direct cause-effect relationship between negative volition and rejection of the gospel and the consequences that take place over the next 10, 15, or 20 years in terms of economic malaise, recession, depression, uh, breakdown in uh, uh, immigration policy. But all of these things ultimately can be the result of a shift in the way a culture views the world and how they respond to the events in the world. And you think about how uh, a, a generation, uh, for example, the World War II generation or even the World War I generation looked at the world and how they responded to things because there was still more of an element of Judeo-Christian absolute thinking within the framework of, of their problem-solving approach. So that when they looked at problems in the world, they did not think in terms of, well, we'll make decisions uh, based on what other nations uh, want us to do. Now, there was no concept of that sort of internationalism. In fact, when uh, Woodrow Wilson tried to get the United States into the League of Nations, there was still a sense, a realization of the importance of national sovereignty that we didn't join the League of Nations. And then after World War II, you see that degradation that took place culturally. No longer is there an understanding of the importance of nations. And, of course, we joined the U.N., and now we have a presidential candidate who has made statements that we shouldn't ever go to war unless we have the approval of the U.N. And back in, um, in at the first Gulf War, in fact, he did not want the U.S. to get involved in the Gulf War at all unless the military was under the control of the United Nations. And, but, and people go along with that. And the vast majority of people in the U.S. think in those terms. So what you see is a further that a people and an individual or, or a people or a culture drifts from biblical absolutes, the more it begins to break down in all kinds of areas until you get, uh, until everything goes into almost a state of chaos, as everything begins to fragment, and you can't come along and say, well, if we had this kind of an economic policy or if we balanced the budget or if we did this or we did that, then that would fix things. Because the only thing that's going to fix things is for there to be, first of all, 
a, a great change in terms of people's volition towards the gospel, and then a shift in their volition towards what the Word of God says and application. And then all of a sudden, you see this shift. And what, what you see in the Mosaic Law is that if the people disobey God, it, it results in economic catastrophe. Well, how does my church attendance and my application of doctrine directly relate to my how I spend money or, or my job or how affluent I become? Well, that's because God is working behind the scenes. There's this, there's this uh, spiritual factor that you can't quantify that is what affects things in both our personal life and in the life of the nation. So no matter what happens, we have to recognize that Jesus Christ controls history, and we have to recognize that, uh, that we're living in a time of increasing negative volition and there is no perfect solution no matter who gets elected because there are major problems in the worldview outlooks of both parties and both platforms and where there are uh, elements of one that may be closer to divine establishment, may be closer to biblical truth than another. It's only approximately so. It's not absolutely so. And if we had a president that was elected that had a uh, degree in theology and had his theology all squared away, had a degree in philosophy and law so that he had spent time actually thinking about how biblical presuppositions affect your views on all the different areas from economics to politics to, uh, I mean, from economics to law to foreign affairs to domestic affairs. And even though he thought all of that out, you still have Congress, you still have a judiciary that hasn't. So no one individual is, is our hope. There's no great white hope out there that's going to, uh, uh, by his or her election, save everything. We are on a one-way road to disaster in this nation because year after year after year, the number of people in this nation who are positive to the Word of God, who are positive to the gospel, diminish. And as long as that trend continues and as long as we continue to open our borders, see, now I'm going to say the major pro- one of the major problems is immigration. It's not just a matter of negative volition. It's that we've been opening our borders indiscriminately for the past 150 years to people groups who do not have a, a thought pattern that is rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview. And that's happened as a result of the uh, 150 years ago, the beginning. Well, I don't, I don't think it began, but you can go back to the Irish, you know, Roman Catholic, you Southern Europe, Roman Catholic, Eastern Europe, Roman Catholic. But at least that was Christian to some degree. But Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy never produced a culture that produced freedom. Can't happen. Because they're divorced, to a certain degree, they're divorced from reality. Uh, African animistic cultures could never produce a culture that had a, an understanding of, of freedom. And the reason African cultures deteriorated 
to the point that they did where they became uh, what we call Stone Age or primitive was because of their rejection historically of the truth of Scripture. The same thing can be said for India. The same thing can be said for all of the Asian countries with Buddhism, Confucianism, uh, whatever it may be. What, what brought those nations into any, to any level of civilization was not their own inherent cultural history. What brought them to any level of civilization was probably due to the influence of the British in the 19th century. And although there were many things that were done that were probably wrong and that were uh, abusive and horrible, what came along with Pax Britannica in the 19th century was hundreds, if not thousands, of missionaries who took the gospel into uh, India and into China and into Japan and into Africa, and they took they took the negatives of Western civilization, but they took that which made Western civilization strong and positive, and that was Christianity. If it weren't for Christianity, Western civilization would have been no different from African tribalism or the mysticism in India or China and, and the uh, breakdowns in those civilizations. So we have to recognize that the determinative factor historically, as well as individually, is your relationship to Jesus Christ and your relationship to Bible doctrine. And we see that happening uh, in, in a microcosm here in the life of Abraham and in the life of Israel. When Israel is in the land and they are obedient, there's prosperity. In fact, the picture that you see in the promises of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus are such that it would be extraordinary prosperity, far beyond what simple arithmetic would predict, because God is the one who is bringing about that increase in prosperity and that increase in productivity. It's not just because they're going out and they're working 40 or 50 hours a week, and before they were lazy and they worked 30 hours a week. They're working the same amount of hours, but God works behind the scenes in terms of weather, in terms of other international incidents that create an environment where there is prosperity and blessing. The same thing happens individually. So in Israel's history, their relationship to the land is symbolic of being in the place of blessing. When they're in the land, they're in the place of blessing, and that's analogous to the believer being, uh, or the believer abiding in Christ. But when the Jew went out of the land in disobedience to God, then he's out of fellowship and in the place of divine discipline. And we see that with Abram in the last half of chapter 12. And there's a breakdown on numerous levels in, in the life of Abraham. We see that he is positionally related to God in the promise of Genesis 12:7 to your descendants I will give this land unconditional promise and the result from Abram is that he worships God and he builds an altar to the Lord now this isn't a simple altar for the offering of a burnt offering or a sacrifice it is more in the sense of building a memorial to God he is building uh, a monument in remembrance of what God did there. You see the same kind of thing happening when the children of Israel went into the land under Joshua. 
And they would build certain monuments so that generations later would see those monuments, a cairn of 12 stones, and then they would ask their, their children would ask their parents, well, daddy, what does that mean? And then they would use that, that rock cairn to teach the doctrine related to God's provision of the land and the children coming across the Jordan, the Israelites coming across the Jordan River on dry land. Uh, we see this same issue in the, in the Christian life that positionally, you see, we are dead to sin. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And what we see is that for Abraham is in the land, it's his positionally, but not experientially. It, but it is his uh, positionally, and we saw uh, that he moves through the land in such a way as he is basically staking out the territory that God's given him. But it has to become his and his descendants experientially, and that doesn't happen, of course, historically until they go in during the conquest under Joshua. But we see the same principle in Romans 6.6. Once you become a believer, you are dead to the sin nature. Its power is broken at salvation. But the fact is that you still sin, you'll still continue to sin until the day you die physically, and the process of sanctification is the process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Uh, Romans 6, uh, 6, 11 and 12 says, consider yourselves dead to sin. That's that process of applying doctrine in the direction of your sin nature over the process of time. Romans 6, 6 says that, that our, uh, our old self was crucified with him, past tense, aorist tense there, indicating that it has taken place in the past, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. And it's an aorist subjunctive, but with a hena clause, it indicates its its future um, potential uh, there, that this is something that would take place yet in the future. And this is where Abraham is. He has the land, it's his positionally, but he has to put it into... Uh, practice. Now, in uh, the, we we reviewed the or in the first chapter we went through the Noahic I mean the Abrahamic covenant, saw that there were seven verbs and these seven verbs give us the seven statements of blessing in that that uh, section. Number one, I will make you a great nation. Number two, God said I will bless you. Number three, I will make your name great. Number four, and you will be a blessing. It expresses the results of the command. Five, I will also bless those who bless you. Six, and I will curse uh, strongly those who curse you or treat you lightly. And seventh, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And it's in those seven principles. And it's interesting that in the Scripture the number seven is used to express that which has perfection. So since seven is the number of perfection, this shows through the literary device and the organization here that this is a blessing that is perfect in every respect. God provides perfectly for Abraham. There is a perfect provision for you at the instant of salvation. God has given us everything we need. That's what we mean when we talk about God's grace is sufficient. He has given us everything at salvation that we're ever going to need to face any problem, every difficulty, uh, any, any heartache, any disaster, any adversity, 
any discomfort that we're going to face in life. God gives us everything we need at salvation. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God. And God will provide for us. Now, in verse 5 of this chapter, we're told that, that Abram finally... Uh, or verse 4, he departs as the Lord spoke to him, which is the same verb indicating obedience to the command to go. It's the verb halak. And he takes Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son. Now, it sounds redundant. Verse 4 is actually the last verse of the first paragraph. Most of your Bibles make a mistake and paragraph it at 4, but it should be paragraphed at 5. 1 through 4 is the first paragraph. Number 1 through 3 gives the command. Verse 4 gives the conclusion. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That gives us the conclusion of the paragraph. Verse 5 then says, Then Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. Now it sounds a little redundant. He just said he he uh, took Lot with him. And the reason it's not redundant is that this is standard Hebrew uh, narrative style, but liberal uh, the, liberal theologians come along and say, well, this is an example of how there's a, multiple authors, multiple editors, and you, so you have these, uh, these rough transitions. It's not a rough transition at all. It's typical. For example, if you look back across the page at, at uh, 1131, you see that the, all the traveling companions are listed. This is your standard procedure. And Terah took his son Abram, we already know he's a son, from verse 27. And his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, identifying them. They've already been identified once, but it now it's a, it's a beginning of a next paragraph, so it's a rehearsal of that. This is just standard style. It still indicates one author. This is very important. You may not think it's important, but this is one of the ways that liberals are attacking the truthfulness of God's Word, especially in Genesis. That Look, you know, this really wasn't written by Moses. It's a bunch of different authors. They just wrote down from their tradition. So you have to understand some things about the Hebrew and Hebrew narrative. And, of course, there are, you know, Hebrew scholars who take that position, but their presupposition is that God couldn't have spoken. So they look at things like this, and they're really coming to the text with a, with a and sort of a Western mindset and not thinking of it in terms of a standard Hebrew organization and structure. We saw in verse 5 that Abram takes Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they are going to the land now that God commanded them to go to, in verse 1, they go to the land of Canaan, and they came to the land of Canaan. And then in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. And what we see here is the passing through of the land is a picture of an individual exercising control or sovereignty over, over the land. You see the same thing in Joshua that's based on this. Joshua 24.3 says, God is speaking and says, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, that's uh, from Ur of the Chaldees on the other side of the Euphrates, led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So this is the process of God leading him through the land. 
And the reason he does is seen in the same actions of Joseph in Genesis 41-46. After Joseph is made the vizier or the number one guy, number one assistant to Pharaoh, we're told in Genesis 41-46, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh after he's been appointed to this position and went throughout all the land of Egypt, same verbiage. He passed through the land of Egypt. What is he doing? He is out there exercising his and establishing his sovereignty over the land of Egypt. So this is the same thing that Abraham is doing. Is he is he is checking out his positional realities in terms of the land and the Abrahamic covenant. Now one of the interesting little side notes here is that it's the, the text says that Abram passed through the land. And under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see some interesting word plays going on in the text. The word for pass through is the Hebrew word avar. A-B-A-R, which is a word that sounds like, look at the, your, your consonants here, B and R, like Abraham, like Avram. So it's a word play. And this word, abar, Avar, is used several times in the Abrahamic narrative. In the same way, you come along, Abraham's son is Yitzhak. Yitzhak looks like this. And you have a uh, another word, the, the, the noun form from this is... Uh, and it means to make sport of something or to laugh at something. And of course, Yitzhak, the name, is derived from the word for laughter. And so you have this word, Sachak, used several times in the Isaac narrative. See, the writer under the Holy Spirit is using these word plays to reinforce some of the main ideas in the text. And then you get down to, to, um, uh, uh, Jacob, and you have the word uh, Akov, A-Q-O-V, which is where you get the word Jacob, the name Jacob, which means someone who's a heel grabber, overreacher, supplanter, or circumventer. And this word is used, the noun is used many times in the Jacob narrative to reinforce that basic meaning. And then you have the uh, Hebrew word yasaf, which means to add or to gather together, uh, Y-A-S-A-P-H, and that's the uh, noun related to the name Joseph, Yosef. So, the right, I mean, this just indicates this is all written by one author. This isn't written by multiple uh, individuals. It wasn't just sort of put together like a patchwork quilt by some 6th century editor. It shows tremendous literary style and ingenuity as, as the, in the way it's written in the, in the Hebrew. And you just miss all these little nuances and all these fun little things that the Holy Spirit throws in there when you have to read it in transla- translation. Now, what we find here is that uh, Abram is given the land, and he moves through the land from north to south, as I pointed out last time. Let me go back here to find the map. There's the map. He moves through from north to south, 
first Shechem, then between Bethel and Ai, then down to through Hebron and down to the Negev. And this takes time. Remember, he has at this time at least a couple of hundred people, slaves and servants, and those who work for him, plus all of his flocks and all of his sheep. Think of Abram as a businessman. I want you to completely get any idea out of your head that Abram's a holy man. He's the father of the Jewish nation. He's uh, exemplified by faith. He's a businessman. All of these men are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're, they're herdsmen. They have, uh, they have sheep and they have cattle and they're the, some of the wealthiest individuals in the ancient world. So I want you to think that this is a business person who has a, and in terms of his relationship with the Lord and his relationship with his business and having to take care of all of his employees and move this vast uh, amount of possessions and people through the land. This isn't some simple operation where you just have Abram and Sarah and he says, okay, well, let's, let's move through the land, get up on your donkey and I'll walk along and we're just going to trot down. He's got tremendous logistical things to deal with here in terms of moving 200 or 250 people. Eventually it's, uh, it's over 300, uh, slaves and servants and people who work for him. And he has to move them through the land and that doesn't take place instantaneously. You have to think in terms of water. You have to think in terms of food. You have to think in terms of their health care. You have to think in terms of all the basic sanitary issues that are involved with 300 people and moving them through the land. And he, that is what is taking place here. So he's moving through the land, and it, this probably took time. It's not just it may be a few days' journey from one place to another, but when you're moving all of those families, it's more than that. So he come, we know that he journeyed south on towards the Negev. Now, some time went by. We don't know how much. The Holy Spirit doesn't deem it significant and just comes to the second test. This has been the first test to go to the land. Remember, that's the command. There's no command to leave the land. The land is the place of blessing. But now, in the place of blessing, there's a test. See, you're in fellowship with the Lord and there's a test. When you're, uh, you're in Christ, but there's still adversity. There's still tests, and so you have to face a test just as Abram faced a test. There was a famine in the land. There's a famine in the place of blessing. There's a famine when he's in right relationship to God. And what does Abram do? Now he has to problem solve. That's the same thing that each of us has to do. When we're faced with adversity, we have to problem solve. We have to decide how are we going to address this. Are we going to stay in fellowship, stay in the land, stay in fellowship, abide in Christ, or are we going to step out and handle it in what we think of as our own limited wisdom, good common sense, and solve the problem in a way that that seems to produce a certain amount of success and prosperity, but in doing so, instead of staying where we're supposed to, that is in fellowship, and rather than applying the word, what we're trying to do is apply some sort of human viewpoint solution. And as soon as we sin... As soon as you get out of fellowship, see what happens here. Let's put our our circle diagram up here. You're in Christ over here, and that's permanent. But in terms of your experience in time, you're over here. You're either in fellowship, in, in fellowship, 
abiding in Christ, or you're out of fellowship, operating on the sin nature in carnality. Now, the only way to get out of fellowship is to sin. But once you sin and you're out here under the control of the sin nature, you're either going to operate from your area of weakness and continue to sin, or you're going to operate from your area of strength and produce human good. One or the other. Those are the only only options. A human good doesn't get you out of fellowship because while you're in fellowship, all you can produce is divine good. It's sin that gets you out of fellowship. And the sin is arrogance, thinking that you can solve your problems yourself. And so all of a sudden, uh, you, make, you make a decision, but what underlies it is arrogance. And you're operating on the arrogant skills versus the stress busters. Uh, the spiritual skills of the spiritual life. So you have, an, two, you have two options and only two options. Arrogant skills or the spiritual skills, the ten uh, stress busters. So let's take some time to do something we haven't covered, something we haven't covered in a while, and that's the doctrine of adversity and stress. First point, there are two kinds of pressures in life, adversity and stress. Adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressures of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. The inevitable outside daily pressures of life. All kinds of things can present adversity. Everything from traffic to waiting in line down at the uh, grocery store and you have some checker who doesn't really know how to do what they're doing and you end up standing there for 15 minutes while the long line down the uh, down the aisle goes through in about five minutes, and you were in the short line with ten items only, and you're there for twenty minutes. You know, adversity can take all kinds of forms, from that to major health adversity. You could live in Florida and get whacked by four hurricanes in in a short amount of time, in a month. So, adversity can is the, that outside pressure. It's inevitable living in the devil's world. The other kind of pressure comes from inside our soul, and that is stress. Stress is defined as the optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external pressures of adversity. See, this is the only thing the unbeliever can do is react. That's all he can do, react, react, react. And he can react a lot of ways. Uh, some, some ways are uh, less damaging than other ways. But the unbeliever can only react to external pressure of adversity by building up stress in the soul. When the believer who is negative to Bible doctrine allows adversity to penetrate his thinking, he has succumbed to the arrogant skills. Once you start operating on your own resources instead of God's, you've already succumbed to arrogance, and the result of that is going to be fragmentation in the soul. And you can take that to a larger step, and when you have a nation that is on carnality, all they're going to do is take adversity, like September 11th, and they're going to convert that to national soul stress, and that's going to produce even greater fragmentation and polarization at the national level. And that's exactly what we see today. We Never has this country, perhaps since uh, the Civil War, or that is the War of Northern Aggression, as we call it down south. Since the uh, war between the states, there has not been as much polarization in this nation as there is today. 
and the the hatred, the enmity, the anger that exists between the conservatives and the liberals in this country is unlike it's been in probably 150 years. And that is due to the fact that most people in this country are operating on their own resources. They've converted all of this adversity to stress in the soul because they don't have any doctrine. They don't know how to evaluate adversity from a biblical framework so that they can come up with sound solutions. Because they are divorced from reality, they're operating in a dream world. And that can be true of both conservatives and liberals. Because ultimately, as the more I analyze this, the more I realize the issue in the war on terrorism is Israel. If Israel, if the Jews were not in the land, the Muslims would not be all stirred up. But the reason Islam is stirred up is because it is inherently anti-Semitic. It is Satan's great tool and hope to destroy Israel, to prevent Israel from ever uh, surviving long enough to experience the fullness of God's promise. Since his defeat at the cross, Satan's only hope to win in the angelic conflict is to destroy every Jew. And this was what I was getting at earlier, is that the issues in life are not what kind of economic policy is John Kerry going to offer as opposed to the economic policy of, of George Bush. Or what kind of the hospitalization or medical policy is, is, are the Democrats going to offer as opposed to the Republicans? That's irrelevant in terms of human history. What's important in terms of human history has to do with what God is doing in, in, in the direction of believers in, in the uh, client nation, number one, and what he is doing in history in relationship to Israel. And I was, it was fascinating this last week to read an article on... Uh, and I forget, I didn't take note of what it was in at the time, but it was a report on a speech given by our very own Senator uh, Lieberman. And what was the title of the article was uh, Hidden Code in, in uh, Lieber, Lieberman's Hidden Code or Secret Code. And in his speech, he was down in Florida speaking to a Jewish audience. And in his, in, in his speech, he praised President Bush's policies to Israel, and then he slipped a one-liner in there that that, that uh, he didn't think that uh, Senator Kerry's policies would be as, as solid. And the writer of the article concluded that this was a secret code from Lieberman to the Jews saying, you better vote for Bush. If you want to support Israel, you better vote for Bush. And I thought that was a fascinating insight from a secular writer. This guy was not a Christian and wasn't in some Christian article. It was in one of the, one of the, um, uh, standard, uh, uh, national publications or local newspapers. So <clears throat> we have to recognize that ultimately issues are not what they always seem to be. And when a nation gets divided, they can't analyze history correctly. And when you have a nation that's operating on carnality, they can't analyze what's going on. They can't properly interpret uh, Islam. They can't properly interpret the events in Israel. And that is the that is the fulcrum on which everything is turning right now. It's all in the Middle East. When you think about when you pay your heating bills this winter, 
It has to do with what's going on in the Middle East. That's going to affect everything this winter. The high price of fuel is going to affect your, your, how much you pay for vegetables, how much you pay for meat, how much you pay for cereal, how much you pay for clothes. It's going to affect your budget in all kinds of ways. It's going to affect the budget of the local church because people won't have as much disposable income, and so their tendency is to forget to trust God and to uh, not give to church. After all, we're not going to have a pastor so we can get away with it. No, you can't. <laughs> you know, it all has to do with having that biblical viewpoint to handle the problems, the adversities of life. So we see that adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressure of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. And stress is what happens when the unbeliever and the carnal believer try to handle any level of adversity through their own resources apart from God. It uh, converts that outside adversity into stress in the soul, which leads to a fragmentation of the soul. Now, secondly, adversity or outside pressure on the soul has two categories. They're suffering from the law of volitional responsibility or divine discipline. This is adversity that you bring on yourself, self-induced misery. You make bad decisions, and that compounds to more bad decisions, and the consequences of that. We'll see that with Abram when he's down in Egypt. See, once he left the land, decided he's going to solve the problem of the famine on his own by going to Egypt, He's not trusting God. God didn't tell him to leave the land. He told him in verse 1, go to the land that I'm going to show you. He didn't say, leave it when times get tough. Now, the interesting thing is that you look at most of the more recent commentaries on Genesis 12, and they don't understand why the older, and by older I mean some of the more solid commentaries such as uh, Chafer and some of the 19th century writers understood this to be sin. They said, well, it doesn't say it's sin. Well, put on your spiritual uh, eyeglasses and take a look. The mandate was to go to the land I will show you, not leave it when the going gets rough and head down to Egypt. And so he gives the land to Abram in verse 7, and so the test here is to stay in the land because you know that if you're in the place where God wants you to be, If you're in fellowship and you're alive, God's going to supply your logistical grace blessings. He's going to take care of you. God told Abraham to go to the land, and he's going to take care of him in the land. He's promised him a seed and that he will have from, that uh, he will be the father of a great nation. Now, all Abraham had to say is, well, there may be a famine in the land, and there may be a food shortage, and when I go down to stop and shop, the doors are closed. But guess what? God promised he's going to make a great nation, and it isn't going to happen if I starve to death. Therefore, I'm just going to stay here and wait on the Lord to solve the problem. And the famine probably would have ended. But see, Abram, because he goes out of fellowship, he's not going to be a blessing to anyone, because if he had stayed in fellowship, trusted God, he would have been a blessing, and God would have ended the famine. So he heads down to Egypt, and when in a state of carnality, he's going to make several decisions that are going to create uh, cursing and discipline for others. They're, because of his disobedience, he's going to um, go to Egypt. Then he's going to lie to protect his own life, 
by and tell a half-truth. It's going to sound like a good idea at the time uh, to protect himself and his wife and say that uh, don't tell him you're my wife, just tell him you're my sister. And then she's going to get put in Pharaoh's uh, harem and uh, the Lord's going to plague Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Now notice, here you have economic health and physical disaster and adversity taking place in Egypt. What's the cause of that? Is it because the Pharaoh had bad economic policy? That he had the wrong health care policy? No, it's because of the carnality of Abram. Because of Abram's carnality, he's not, he's not only not being a blessing to anybody, he is the avenue and the cause of divine discipline on the nation of Egypt, and they're going, they're experiencing numerous, numerous plagues. So this is a, a, a compound situation. First he gets out of fellowship with one bad decision, and then as a result of the law of volitional, uh, volitional responsibility, uh, what he sows he has to reap, so there are additional consequences. The other side of adversity is they're suffering for blessing. And we're going to see that there was suffering that could have been turned into blessing if Abraham had stayed in the land. So the famine wasn't the result of his bad decision. The famine was just the fact of living in the devil's world, living in a fallen world. It's how he responded. So if he had responded positively, it would have accelerated his spiritual growth. What's interesting with Abraham is when he gets into the land and all of a sudden he realizes, I mean, when he gets down into Egypt and as he's approaching Egypt, he suddenly looks over at, at, at this, his 65-year-old drop-dead gorgeous wife. Remember, they lived, he lived, Abraham lives to 175, Sarah lived to about 140, so she still has her beauty and he realizes that his life's in danger. He knows that there's this perverted culture down there in Egypt, and they're going to want his wife. So to protect them, he decides to come up with this this alternative uh, solution. One bad decision leads to a, another uh, bad decision, and he's trying to protect their lives. He has good motives. He's not doing it because he's going to get rewards or money from Pharaoh. There's some... Some who think, well, he comes up with this because he's going to trade her off and get a dowry, and he's doing this for financial gain. That's not it at all. But he is making, he is compounding bad, bad decisions. So instead of accelerating his spiritual growth, he's decelerating it and going into uh, reversionism. Okay, our third point. First point, two kinds of pressures in life. Second point, uh, adversity can be the result of our own bad decisions. Or it can be suffering for blessing. Third point, adversity is what the external circumstances of life do to you. You have no control over that. Stress is what you do to yourself. It's the result of your own volition, your own decision whether or not to trust God or whether to rely upon your own limited resources. Adversity is what the outside pressures of life do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Fourth point, adversity is inevitable. As we live in the devil's world, there's always going to be different kinds of adversity. But stress is optional and depends on our negative volition. 
So adversity is going to be there every single day. There's going to be things that go wrong. There are going to be people who don't respond, don't perform, don't do what you think they should do. Your wife's not going to be as beautiful as you think she should be. Your husband's not going to be as as thin and good-looking as he was when you first met him. Your kids are going to uh, do stupid things and be disobedient, and your parents are going to do stupid things and be disobedient, and you're going to have all kinds of people testing with those you work with and work for and those you're responsible for, and that's inevitable. But what makes a difference is how you respond. Now, what's interesting is that when Abraham is headed south, And he is leaving out of Haran to go south. I didn't cover this. I wanted to wait to this point. He takes people with, it says that all their possessions that they had gathered, now that would include the slaves, and the people whom they had acquired. Now that that's back in, I've gone back to verse 5. The people whom they had acquired. But that is really a bad translation. It has. It says the souls, the souls, nefesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, the souls that they had made. Asa, this is that same word we have for create in um, in Genesis 1, to do or to make. What was he doing with these souls? That, that, the, the second part there talks about the souls he made are the people that he led to the Lord. And his, through their ministry, as he went, as he was living in Haran. So they've got a number of believers that they're taking with them. He has been already a blessing to those around him. But when he gets down to, when he gets down to Egypt, where he can have, could, in one sense, have be a testimony, have a witness, what does he do? Because he's living in carnality, he's absolutely blown his testimony. He has no basis for communicating the gospel or the truth about God to the Egyptians because he is not living consistent in a, in a manner that is consistent with what he, what he believes. So when we get out of fellowship, it destroys our testimony before man and before the angels in the angelic conflict. And this is a result of our negative volition and what stress does to our life. So fourth point, adversity is inevitable, stress is optional. Fifth point, stress in the soul always results in sin nature control. When you are under the control of the sin nature, you're going to make one bad decision after another because what happens is your spiritual discernment is shut down. You are uh, quenching the Holy Spirit, and so you can't make good decisions from a position of strength. A good decision from the the position of strength in the believer's life is in fellowship. It's not being well-rested, in shape, not having it together. The position of strength in the believer's life is being in fellowship and operating on Bible doctrine. And when you are out of fellowship, uh, you are operating from a position of weakness, which is your sin nature. And the result is that stress begins to compound, increasing carnality. You, become, you begin to reverse your spiritual growth and you begin to slide into moral and immoral degeneracy, which eventually destroys your capacity for life, for love, and for happiness. It leads to instability and produces neurotic and psychotic Christians, which is a pretty good description of the modern evangelical church. 
We don't know how to trust God. And Abraham had forgotten how to trust God. So stress uh, perpetuated in the soul. Then point number six, stress perpetuated, perpetuated in the soul means a failure to glorify God and therefore spiritual failure. And Abraham goes into spiritual failure here when he goes down to Egypt. And he tries to solve the problem on his own. And he begins by telling a lie. Point number seven, the only solution then is the divine solution. The human solution is no solution. This is seen in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, when Paul had to deal with the thorn in the flesh demon. We don't know what the exact problem was. The context suggests that it was all of the difficulty he dealt with. For example... He says, concerning this, that is the thorn in the flesh demon, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul said, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And then verse 10, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, he outlines the difficulties. There was apparently a demon that was stirring up, and he knew that there was a demon behind the problem would stir up opposition to him everywhere he went. And so he was faced with persecution and opposition and difficulty. He was thrown in prison and shipwrecked and beaten numerous times. But he knew it wasn't because he was making bad decisions or out of fellowship, but because he was living in the devil's world. And so he constantly was responding by trusting in God and learning the principle of sufficiency of grace. Abram isn't learning it here. He is falling apart. And the result is going to be, instead of blessing, there's going to be negative consequences. And we'll wrap this up next time and wrap up the chapter. That will be a pretty decent place to close next time. Now, remember, next week we won't meet on Wednesday night. We will meet on Thursday night. Try to remember that and because um, I have to take a car down to uh, Houston. So, appreciate your prayers as I travel. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that that as we each face adversity, we need to apply doctrine. We need to uh, trust you. We need to walk by faith and not by sight. And we need to apply uh, consistently the, the principles and promises that we've learned from your word. We pray that you challenge us with these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.